Uh, I apologize for the quality and quantity. Well, actually, quantity shouldn't be a problem this morning of the uh, notes. We're having copier issues in the office. But hopefully they're legible. Okay, let's have a word of prayer before we get started. Heavenly Father, you alone are good, and from you comes all provision for our righteousness and for our endurance. Lord, for the building of your church, please, Lord, bless us now with understanding and discernment and all wisdom through your spirit as we study your word. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified to keep us from error and to sanctify us in the truth. Lord, your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. This is the fourth week of our study, Gifts That Build the Church. Um, it's an interesting thing to have six weeks to do a study on something like spiritual gifts, and, and hopefully it's okay with you all that we've, we've uh, used that as an opportunity to take sort of an unusually extensive approach, starting way back in Exodus, and considering that the idea of spiritual gifts was actually fairly well developed in Scripture by the time Peter and Paul were writing about God's provision for the church in their New Testament epistles. Uh, just to recap what we learned in the few first few weeks, and you see there's a summary uh, at the top of the first page, a uh, summary from prior weeks. Uh, we started off considering that spiritual gifts are a practical provision from the Lord to make it possible for totally depraved sinners to minister to one another in such a way as to actually see an increase in holiness, and also that uh, God's standard of holiness for his church is no less than the very holiness of God himself. Uh, we then looked in that first session at how the tabernacle was a type or shadow for the body of Christ, which is synonymous with the church. And then with that in mind, we explored Exodus 35 and 36, noted, noting how God's provision of goods, skills, and gifted men resembled and pointed to Jesus' provision of gifts and gifted men to the church. As we considered the Exodus passage and then the passage in First Chronicles about God's provision for the temple, uh, we started to see how God's gift to the church includes everything we've received, including the will to spend it all joyfully for the building of the church. And then last week, we turned to the New Testament passages that specifically mention, uh, at least in the English translations, the idea of spiritual gifts and from which we derive the gifts lists. Uh, we spent the greatest amount of time in 1 Corinthians 12, the entirety of which is on the subject of God's gifts to the church, and in which we see Paul's concern that the people in Corinth were focusing on the gifts, uh, particularly on what he refers to as the higher gifts, in a way that was stirring up pride, divisiveness, and poor stewardship. As we looked uh, at four separate texts, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 4 through 8, 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11, and Ephesians 4, 4 through 13, we saw that these four texts, which have two separate authors, and Paul and Peter, have remarkably similar main points and concerns that clearly supersede the gifts themselves in importance. In summary, we said that the common theme of these texts is that the point is not the gifts, but the giver. It's not the person gifted, but the church for which the gifts are intended, to the exceeding glory of Christ, who is glorified as he builds his church through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and if you missed last week, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that we get the point of these texts before we start examining the itemized list uh, to increase our understanding of the gifts themselves. It's probably clearest in 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul's concern is actually that the people have been too fixated on the gifts, variously using them for self-promotion, ascribing glory to men, looking down on others, making excuses for not serving, and generally behaving in a way that is worldly. And unfortunately, like I said last week, I think that the church in our day is no less prone to these errors when we simply come to these passages to get the gift lists 
and miss the importance each of these texts places on love, unity, stewardship, and the glory of Christ in the work of the Holy Spirit in building the church. Um, and that said, uh, like I had said from, I think, the second week, I do want to step back and take a look at the list of gifts. Uh, I think there's a reason why they're itemized the way they are in the various passages. And uh, they tell us something about the Lord's abundant provision. And uh, Dan's talking about that this morning in the message. Um, that the, the point that Jesus wants to make so often is that he's the source of everything we need. Uh, and I think that, the, that the, looking at the gifts uh, individually can, can show us the abundance, the richness, and the practicality of his provision uh, for building the church. Uh, so you see on the uh, outline there, 1 through 13, so with, with uh, various subpoints. Um, so that, that's the list of gifts that we're going to go through. Uh, and something I wasn't thinking about too much uh, until after I had finished my notes was as we go through it, I want to pause um, probably fairly frequently and, and show how everything we've received contributes to our exercise of even the things on the list. Uh, so I'll try to remember to do that since it's not really in my notes as much. But that should uh, give sort of some continuity to the theme that we've been looking at since the first week. Uh, let's see, back to the notes. Okay, and on the outline, I referred to uh, the list as sort of a sampler or a sampling of gifts. And this is because, as the commentators generally agree, any list compiled from these texts will not be exhaustive. Uh, and you'll, you'll notice that. You may think of things that are, that are gifts in other texts that aren't part of the lists. Uh, and we could come up with a huge list if we went through the whole New Testament and looked at the gifts. Uh, and, of course, that's in keeping with the idea that your spiritual gift is, is much broader than if you just look at items on a list. Uh, and I think, again, it's secondary for these texts to, uh, to contribute the list of gifts. Um, but like I said, it should cause us to exult and worship uh, because of the provision that God has made for the church through these gifts. In trying to determine an order in which to address them, it doesn't really seem like it, it matters all that much, the order. Uh, it matters in the texts, um, but when we remove the list from the text, it uh, kind of loses the purpose that the author has. And we looked at the purpose that the author had last week. Uh, so what I did was I sort of tried to arrange them in order from most universal in scope and in, in granting to more specific. Uh, so we're going to start with gifts that apply to all of us in some measure. And as you see, the first one on the list is serving, also known as helps. Uh, and with each one, I gave you the citations for which uh, portions in scripture in the, the, the text we've looked at, which ones it appears in. Uh, and this one appears in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. Uh, and this one I chose first because I think, especially in the 1 Corinthians text, it's apparent that the most important and foundational of the gifts is serving or helps. Uh, according to what Paul is teaching here, every gift's, gift is a helps gift because every gift is a service gift. Uh, and Peter also makes this point uh, when he says, as each, each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And that's, that's broad. Peter's list actually just breaks it down into service and speaking. Uh, so he's, he just sees two broad categories in his list. And again, this contributes to the idea that, that it's everything you've received. And, and Peter's basically saying that. Use all you have. Everything goes into this gift. The Lord's made 
all kinds of provision from what you were born with all the way to what you received yesterday as part of your serving gift. Uh, and so because uh, it's so prevalent in the text we've considered, we've talked about this a lot in the last couple of sessions, that what really sets a gift apart as being a spiritual gift is the heart behind it. Uh, that the contribution to the body, whatever it is, is brought with a willing and generous heart, a heart that loves justice, mercy, and righteousness, uh, and that is for the purpose of the edification of others. That's what's what makes it a spiritual gift. And as we see throughout 1 Corinthians, anything that's done in order to serve oneself or to edify oneself is contrary to God's purpose in the church. And again, this is consistent with a proper Old Testament understanding of God's purpose. Um, in Isaiah 58, uh, in verse 3, Isaiah says, uh, and he's quoting the people, complaining, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Uh, so, once again, and we've looked at that more than once, it's not the form that they had wrong, it was the heart uh, behind it. And, and in their case, they were seeking their own pleasure. And of course, we know that's, that's our tendency, is to seek our own pleasure, our own edification, and that's what was Paul's concern in the Corinthian church. And of course, this fits perfectly with Jesus' teaching in the Gospel accounts as well. In Matthew 20, uh, starting with verse 25, he says, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Uh, and we noticed in the first week how even leaders' authority, when the leaders are corrupt, is, is delegated by God for the common good. But, but they exercise, the Gentiles or exercise their authority in a way that's not biblical. Verse 26, he says, It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is our model uh, for the heart behind every gift. And then we see in um, John 13 where he uh, washes the feet of the disciples, uh, which was considered definitely far beneath pretty much anyone, to wash other people's feet. It's also important to note that Jesus is not speaking of a select group of Christians who are gifted for service. He says whoever would be great must be a servant and a slave. And similarly, similarly in Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Uh, and by the way, I don't know if I've given full voice to this fact. Uh, we've talked about having a right heart behind our service and behind our contributions. Um, and that's certainly related. But this has everything to do with repentance. Uh, repentance is key to the true exercise of a spiritual gift. Um, and I think we've seen that throughout the texts that we've looked at. You know, it's believers who have the Holy Spirit and who are endowed with uh, the ability to exercise um, spiritual gifts. But that text, take up his cross daily. This is ongoing repentance. It's not just the repentance that comes at regeneration. Uh, it's, it's daily repentance and dying to self and, and, and sacrifice from a right heart. Uh, and just one more thing to call your attention to between before we leave the gift of helping and serving. Um, if you have a bulletin from this morning's service, take a look at the back. Uh, under ministers, it says the call of God is for all believers to use their spiritual God-given talents, or gifts, I'm sorry, to minister to the body of Christ until collectively we all reach maturity and unity 
and faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so you see there, you have an official appointed role uh, here at Calvary, and it starts with that, that gift of service that we're all given. Okay. Uh, and you know what? A, a, another thing that's interesting to note, you know, like we said, Jesus uh, models this gift perfectly for us in his service and his humility. What was I listening to recently? I don't remember what it was, but uh, in Luke 12, it says Jesus will serve us when we get to eternity. And that's that's just incredible that, that the Lord of all things, the God of the universe, will serve us. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. So he saves us for this slavery to righteousness, but it's not, it's not uh, without the benefit of, of his service to us, which is astounding. Uh, okay, uh, so we're going to just take these one at a time. Next up is mercy. Um, and this one appears just in the one list in Romans 12. Um, like helps, though, it's a gift that's going to inform and undergird our use of all the rest of the gifts. And again, it's a gift that every true child of God has received, and one which we're all called to practice. I mean, I'm sure you can't imagine saying, I don't have the gift of mercy, so I don't have to be merciful. Uh, and Jesus' teaching to the contrary, in Luke 6, verse 36, he says that we are to be merciful even as our Father is merciful. Um, so again, similar to the gift of helps and that God himself models this for us. And like uh, Peter says, we're to be holy as our Father is holy. Same way, we're to be merciful as our Father is merciful. Uh, now some of these are going to be a little bit more difficult to see how our natural inclinations or our natural abilities uh, fuel or supply our gifts. But uh, this occurs to me. My brother growing up was much more inclined uh, to be merciful than I was. Um, I don't think he was a believer from a young age. Uh, he just, it, when I was in school, my mom will tell this story. When I was in school, she would take him to the store, and he would, she would buy him something, and he would want to get one for me also. That was not the inclination of my heart. <laughs> so, and, you know, God's, God's grace contributes in various ways to that. But, you know, again, you're going to have inclinations that you bring with you um, to your life as a believer and, and exercise those. He's still is probably more inclined to mercy than I am. Um, and now, being his being a believer, it's a spiritual gift, part of his spiritual gift. Um, so we are called to have mercy on others, even as the Lord has shown us mercy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So you see three categories of people who are, who are experiencing difficulty or maybe even suffering, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. But he's telling us, you know, not to chide them necessarily, but to, to be merciful, to admonish them, yes, when they're idle, but encourage them and help them. And, of course, that's in the context of the local church. But what mercy there is also in the faithful exercise of the gift of evangelism. In fact, we could probably go down the whole list and find a mercy component in each of the other gifts if it's being exercised faithfully. Uh, it's worth noting also that in context, uh, mercy has a connotation of caring for the sick or suffering. And here is where we start to see that natural provision from God is commingled with his supernatural work and provision, 
uh, in terms of mercy, in addition to what I already mentioned about our natural inclinations. In addition to the repentance necessary to exercise true mercy, we need to have the means or the resources to comfort and strengthen the one who is suffering. Uh, it may have been granted to you to be trained as a medical professional, uh, maybe even as an unbeliever, but now as a believer, your naturally obtained skills can be employed in your gift of mercy. And we see this in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. We don't know where the Samaritan man gets the money and the oil and wine he uses to lavish the suffering man with, with mercy. All we know is that God provided them to him, and he was faithful to use them to show mercy. And this is what we're all called to, to use whatever we've received to show mercy, and in this way we'll be like our Heavenly Father. Uh, one more note on mercy. In Romans 12, Paul emphasizes that mercy must be exercised with cheerfulness. He's concerned about the heart behind the showing of mercy. And this touches on the fact that we can go through the motions of trying to look merciful without having the heart of mercy. And that just makes me think of um, high school short-term mission trips and, and things in that vein. You think of welfare and, and other things that don't necessarily spring from bad motives, uh, but they're not with uh, a, a biblically informed heart. Uh, and so they're, they're not the exercise of the spiritual gift. As with any of the rest of the gifts, it's so important that we exercise it with a heart that rejoices in the idea of spending and being spent for God's purpose, specifically that of building his church. Uh, and this, of course, relates to the effectiveness of your service. Um, you've probably observed a medical professional who didn't do their job joyfully. Um, and this is a quote from Kelvin. For as nothing gives more solace to the sick or to anyone otherwise distressed than to see men cheerful and prompt in assisting them, so to observe sadness in the countenance of those by whom assistance is, giving, is given makes them to feel themselves despised. So it's critical that uh, we are cheerful in our hearts as we show mercy. Uh, next up is the gift of giving, which appears in the list in Romans 12. Uh, and there Paul says that the one who contributes should do so in generosity, or otherwise uh, translated simplicity or liberality. It's interesting to note here that the normal Greek word for giving is didomi, but that Paul instead uses metadidomi, which intensifies the meaning to include sharing and imparting that which is one's own. Uh, the implication is that you're not just giving goods or money, although that is part of it. Uh, we see throughout the New Testament, Paul especially talking about the giving of, of worldly wealth, and we saw worldly wealth being brought to the temple. So there is contribution in terms of naturally obtained resources, but it's not just that. You're actually giving of yourself uh, with the exercise of the spiritual gift. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share, and that's the same word, metadidomi, to share with you not only the gospel of God, and so evangelism, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You see, Paul has cultivated this heart uh, towards the people, uh, this affectionate longing, this desirousness of them. And that's where his giving of his own self is coming into the picture. And of course, we saw repeatedly in Exodus 35 and 36 that the people who brought gifts for the construction of the tabernacle brought them with willing and generous hearts and that their hearts had moved them and their spirits had moved them to bring their gifts with liberality and joy. And of course, Jesus' teaching comes to mind when we think of giving with simplicity, uh, which is another way to translate that verb, or I'm sorry, that adjective that... Um, uh, appears in the ESV as generously. He instructed that when we give to the needy, we should not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. And like I mentioned last week, Ananias and Sapphira violated this principle when they uh, gave to the church in Acts 5. 
uh, and the, the Holy Spirit showed how serious it is when you have self-seeking motives uh, and you bring, bring something uh, with that kind of pretense. Um, but that, of course, was purifying uh, for the church when God demonstrated that. Uh, one final point on the gift of giving. Uh, this is a gift, the exercise of which is most often clearly dependent on what we might otherwise think of as natural provision. Um, someone has an ability that enables him to get a job where he earns a nice living, and he, he gives generously to his church. So where's the line between natural ability, world, worldly provision, and spiritual gift? And again, it would seem that if you want to draw a line, you should draw it between a heart that gives out of the generosity of the spirit and a heart that gives with a selfish motive. The distinction, again, when it comes down to it, is repentance. Um, and not just one time, but ongoing. Because it's easy to slip into. I mean, you, you may have a repentant heart before the Lord, but you slip into a wrong motive in uh, whatever your habit is of, of exercising your gift, and you can harden your heart. Um, and you see that as the disciples have the gift of faith earlier on, and then Jesus remarks on their lack of faith later. They've, they've slipped into perhaps different motives as they're going to exercise in a practical way what they'd already exercised uh, successfully, but then the next time it's without success. They're not able to cast out the demon. Uh, and that's the next gift on the list is the gift of faith. Uh, and it, it appears uh, in the list in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul emphasizes that it is given by the one spirit. Now, judging from uh, what the various commentators say, the spiritual gift of faith is a little trickier to define and understand than some of the others. Uh, while there seems to be general consensus that this is not the same thing as saving faith, some have said that the spiritual gift is faith in miracles as opposed to faith in doctrine, um, and I, I wouldn't make that distinction. But it does seem safe to conclude that the spiritual gift of faith is what Jesus intended when he responded to the disciples' request for more faith, which gets to what I was mentioning there. In Luke 17, uh, verse 6, he says, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And I think this is where he has the gift of faith <coughs> excuse me, in mind. Now that's a difficult text, and it might not seem like it would be clarifying. But I think it, it might help us to hone in on what the spiritual gift of faith is. We understand that Jesus is speaking hyperbolically, uh, that he's exaggerating to make his point. He never told a mulberry tree to be uprooted and cast into the sea, or told a mountain to go into the sea. Uh, but his point is that with God, all things are possible. And he says that elsewhere also, making a point a different way. And that, that God will always keep his promises, and that he will always supply what is needed in order to do so. Also, the context is important. The, reasons the, dis the reason the disciples have asked for more faith is because they find Jesus' teaching on forgiveness to be impossible. And Jesus is agreeing with them that it's impossible. Uh, and again, this is where the repentant heart comes in. Uh, Jesus is, is teaching them, you're dependent on me. You're dependent on the gift of faith that I'm giving you, and you need to exercise that. Um, he's saying, basically, it's more impossible than, or at least as impossible, as moving a mountain or commanding a tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. It would be easier for those things to happen than for a spiritually dead man to make himself come alive to Christ and to make himself willingly and joyfully submissive to God's law, including Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. Um, in thinking, and I was thinking about this later, uh, after finishing the notes, but uh, Judas was able to cast out the demons. Um, so there's something there I haven't worked through entirely. But there is credulity 
uh, that, that some of us are more inclined to, not to say that Judas was inclined to, to credulity, but Jesus teaches that uh, you can have faith like a child, and presumably an unregenerate child. Some people are more likely to see the reality of their dependency. Um, so, so presumably, if, if that's you, then you're going to have an easier time exercising faith. So just again, where the lines kind of blur between the supernatural contribution to our gifts and, and what we bring um, in our, in our innate natures. And we know from the rest of scripture and probably from even our own experience that when Jesus tells his disciples, ask whatever they wish in his name, he does not mean that God will grant anything that we think to ask him. Um, as one commentator says, on the contrary, as nothing is more at variance with faith than the foolish and irregular desires of our flesh, it follows that those in whom faith reigns do not desire everything without discrimination, but only that which the Lord promises to give. Let us therefore maintain such moderation as to desire nothing beyond what he has promised to us, and to confine our prayers within that rule which he has laid down. And the only thing I would add to that is that it's hardly a confinement or a limitation when you consider the incredible depth and breadth and richness of God's promises. And this is how we can exercise faith in a way that edifies the church. We can make decisions and pray prayers that would be absurd apart from God's promises in Christ, knowing that he has bound himself by them in all of his infinite faithfulness. So this is dependent not on our faith, but on his faith. Our exercise of the gift of faith is dependent on, on his faithfulness because he's, he's keeping his promises as he fulfills his word and, and grants the things that we need that are necessary and provision for the building of his church. And he delights in and receives glory from his provision of all things necessary to keep us and to see to our perseverance in the truth. And this is the upshot. I mean, when, when Jesus is rescuing uh, his disciples from the storm or when he's providing food, the ultimate point is not physical provision or physical rescue. It's that he's the keeper. He's the sustainer. He's the one who sees to our perseverance. He's the one who makes all the supply. And, and all the wisdom, uh, Dan read from Thomas Watson in the staff meeting this week, and uh, uh, last week, I guess it was, and Watson was making the point that when we are joyful in our circumstances, we are worshiping God for his wisdom because it's his wisdom that, that makes all these things come to pass in such a way as to keep all that the Father has given to Christ and, and to, to make every provision uh, so that we'll persevere in the faith. And when you think about the vastness of that, the millions of Christians and, and throughout history that he's, he's ordained circumstances in such a way as to see to the perseverance of the saints, that's, it's astounding. Uh, and one more thing Dan mentioned this morning, that uh, Jesus makes always to make inter lives always to make intercession for us uh, and I have here in my notes, we can rejoice and be glad as we see him grant to us and to our brothers and sisters in Christ more grace than we even would have thought to ask for. And this is the cool thing, that provision he makes in spite of our faithlessness and prayerlessness on the basis of the Holy Spirit's intercession, which he does with groanings too deep for words because we don't know how to pray as we ought from Romans 8.26. So Jesus lives to make intercession for us, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, and, and, and the Lord always hears those prayers and grants to us everything necessary for life and godliness to see to our perseverance. Uh, next up, knowledge and wisdom, uh, which are found together in the list in 1 Corinthians 12. And I'm combining these not because they're the same, but because they're closely related. Uh, there are a number of views, again, on the nature and relationship of these two gifts, but it seems safest to say that knowledge is more theoretical, while wisdom is more practical. And to put it succinctly, and I think this is in the notes, um, wisdom is knowledge applied. Um, 
and again, blurring of the lines between natural ability, natural gifting, and, and, and spiritual gifting here. <coughs> when you consider, I think I mentioned this last week, Paul's well-trained mind. Um, and, and most of us probably received our educations before coming to know the Lord, but how useful is your education in, in knowing the Lord? If the Lord's given you an ability to read even, to know him through his scriptures. Uh, that's, that's part of our, it's, at least it endows our spiritual gifts because of the, the necessity of reading and feeding on God's word um, in order to fuel your, your exercise of your gift. If we take that sense that wisdom is knowledge applied, we can definitely see how essential both wisdom and knowledge are to the functioning and building up of the church. <coughs> Excuse me. Take, for example, a text we looked at uh, a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul says, do you not know, so knowledge, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's concerned that they know a fact in that case. Or also from uh, right in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, that we looked at last week. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So, so an item of knowledge that he wants them to have. And in these cases, we see that God was con showing concern through the scripture, scripture writers that we would be aware of various facts uh, or indicatives, which would then in turn form our, in, inform our practice, uh, which is taken from the imperatives. And, and that's a, a common concept you've probably heard talked about, indicatives and imperatives, and you, you don't want to separate those two. It's also worth noting that where these appear in the list, they're called utterance. Um, the NAS translates that word, so it's utterance or word of knowledge and utterance of wisdom. And so with regard to knowledge, the Lord has provided his church with people who are enabled to track down and tie together the facts of scripture through careful exegesis and systematic theology, and then to communicate it to his people through spoken or written word. And you'll see when we get to teaching that that, of course, um, applies with teaching. Uh, as for wisdom... Uh, this would also be the ability to understand God's word and his will and to skillfully apply that understanding to life. So we see how, how wisdom is knowledge applied. Other than Jesus, probably the best and most well-known biblical example of, of wisdom is Solomon, of whom it is said that the Lord gifted him with wisdom beyond measure. Uh, and Jesus, after him, uh, who always answered well, uh, as it says repeatedly in the gospel accounts. And like that, Solomon's skill at applying understanding to life struck awe in those who had elevated positions in their own right. Uh, the Queen of Sheba said uh, to Solomon, The report was true that I heard in my own land about your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe it. I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Uh, so that, that incredible doxology coming from the Queen of Sheba, uh, at having observed Solomon's wisdom. Uh, and of course, wisdom is absolutely essential to our counseling ministry uh, here at Calvary. It's not at all unusual to find a counselee who is full of theological knowledge, but who needs instruction in the skill to apply God's understanding and knowledge to the realities of living. And this is a prominent feature of the preaching here also. Uh, and again, when, you, when we get to teaching and preaching, you'll see that distinction. Um, that uh, whenever application is drawn from the text, this is the exercise of the gift of wisdom in the spoken word. Uh, next on the list, 
exhortation, uh, which is found in the Romans 12 text. The Greek word translated exhortation uh, is a compound of two words that have the literal meaning to call someone to one side. Uh, and it's actually the word from which we get paraclete, which means helper. Uh, and here you see, again, all gifts are, are helps and service gifts. Um, that's, that's clear with exhortation. Uh, and this is a term Jesus used both for himself and for the Holy Spirit. A person with this gift might variously advise, plead with, encourage, warn, strengthen, and com comfort others in the body. And this might bring to mind Paul when he said, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In terms of provision for this gift, uh, wisdom, mercy, and boldness are all very important. To be effective in exhortation, clearly skill in applying God's word, uh, his wisdom, is essential. And Paul has exhortation in view in Galatians 6, uh, verse 1, where he instructs that if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Now we might see that uh, the need for correction is there without having it spring from a spirit of mercy. And when that happens, that's where we must, uh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> when that happens, that's where we're, we're going to tend to lack gentleness. Uh, so for it to be the spiritual gift, exhortation must be practiced with the desire to build the body up in love, uh, and therefore with mercy and gentleness. Uh, this is one where you can still see contribution uh, from your natural inclinations, but exhortation is one where you need to be careful with that. If you're a person who enjoys uh, hard confrontation, uh, it, it might be too easy to exercise exhortation in a way that's not a spiritual gift. Um, <clears throat> but it does require boldness, uh, which some of us might be inclined to, and certainly that's good to use if you have it. But the better way to think of the kind of boldness that you need uh, to exercise exhortation uh, would be to inform it with Proverbs 28.1, which says the righteous are as bold as a lion. Um, and I think this gets to the idea that before going to exhort someone um, especially when it's bringing them wisdom that they need because they're struggling, they need to apply God's wisdom, you first need to have applied that wisdom faithfully in your own life. Uh, and as Jesus teaches, before you go to remove the speck from your brother's eye, remove the log from your own eye. Uh, okay, discernment is up next. Uh, and discernment is found in the list in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul calls it the ability to distinguish between spirits. Uh, to put it bluntly, it's the ability to tell between God's truth and all other truth claims, which are lies. Um, they don't proceed from the Holy Spirit, and that's why he says it's the ability to distinguish between spirits. But uh, ultimately, their source, their root, is Satan, who is the father of lies. Uh, and, and those who are aligned with him propagate all truth claims that are not God's truth. Uh, as this would indicate, uh, the, the gift of discernment is a critical one in the church. And uh, actually, it's one that some of our men are studying right now in leadership training, which is good because the writer of Hebrews tells us that this is something we should be trained in. Uh, chapter 5, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And again, you can see how your natural inclinations or gifting could feed this one. Um, some of us have a good memory. You know, we can call scripture to mind more easily. And God is gracious. A lot of times, those of us who don't have as good a memory, Scripture just pops into your mind sometimes, and you know that's just the Lord's providence uh, when, it's, when it's useful and applicable. 
uh, but also logic. You know, it, it takes, it, and that's, that's where training can come in too, training your mind to think logically and to, to use reasoning uh, to see where half-truths especially, because that would, that would be included in things that are not God's truth, is, is where God's truth, men have taken it and commingled it with, um, with worldly thinking, with worldly motivations or um, things that aren't true about God, like Gnosticism. Uh, and, and it takes some thinking sometimes to, to figure out what's true and what's not in those combinations. And I think uh, the reason I say that this is one of the crucial gifts for building the church is that it's so neglected today. Uh, you may have heard it said that Matthew 7, judge, or 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged, has replaced John 3.16 as the most popular verse in the world. Um, and while Matthew 7, 1 is a very important verse and is often neglected in terms of application for what it's actually saying, uh, the way it's used popularly, popularly is actually to discourage discernment. The sense of it, the way it's used popularly is, I'm okay, you're okay. Don't judge me and I won't judge you. And this is relativism. And it's, it's in total contradiction to biblical Christianity, which does, as unpopular as this today, it, it is today, it, it claims knowledge of an exclusive truth, uh, an exclusive truth with radically controversial claims about its eternal import. That being that those who know Christ are, are destined for heaven and those who don't are destined for eternal conscious torment. Uh, like I said, it's, it's important to be trained in discernment by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And like with the rest of the gifts, the heart behind the practice of discernment is extremely important. And this is like with exhortation also. Um, and it's interesting, of course, those are both related to knowledge. If you have a word of exhortation, it's because you're informed by knowledge. Discernment takes knowledge. Uh, and Paul says that knowledge puffs up. Uh, so you just have to be aware of the tendency that, that comes with having these gifts and the, the temptation to exercise them wrongly in a way that it seeks to show your superiority in knowledge or, or, or any other number of, of bad reasons. Uh, instead, discernment must be exercised with love, with the desire to protect the Lord's people from destructive teachings, and even with the desire to see those with destructive teachings come to know the Lord. And Paul says this repeatedly when he puts guys on church discipline. This is so that they'll learn not to blaspheme, or so that he's handed them over to Satan so that they'll, they'll, be, they'll, they'll learn the error of their ways and come back to the church. Uh, there are many texts that capture the heart of discernment, uh, but the one that I think should impress on us the importance of, of uh, the faithful exercise of discernment in our day, again, I quoted it just a minute ago, but Paul is speaking in Acts 20, uh, verses 29 to 31, to the Ephesian elders, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Uh, and so he's, he's calling them to exhortation at the end there, but he's also calling them to be alert to false teaching and to exercise discernment. And this is common across the New Testament epistles, whether Paul or Peter, Jude, James or John, these men are discerning destructive teachings and heresies, disproving them by scripture and holding up the truth as the truth. The Lord has graciously provided the gift of discernment and those, those with discernment to see to it that his church will be continued to be built up and sanctified in the truth, which is what Jesus prayed for us in his priestly prayer. And uh, just as we all have occasion and need to practice discernment, we also all have occasion and need to practice the next gift, which is that of evangelism, uh, which shows up only in Ephesians 4, 
uh, of the text that we're looking at, but of course is a constant theme in the New Testament. Uh, but in Ephesians 4, Paul says uh, that Jesus gave the evangelists to the church. The work of an evangelist is to preach and explain the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to those who have not yet believed. Uh, while there, there are those who are particularly gifted in the ministry of evangelism, we find a general call to evangelism in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, uh, where Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them excuse me, to observe all that I have commanded you. And evangelism is per perhaps the most important gift when it comes to building the church in terms of adding to our number. Uh, and I think we've sort of had that all along, that there are, there's more than one way to think of building the church. One is in terms of adding to our number, which is maybe the more common concept, you know, church growth movements and all that. The other, of course, is in increasing in purity. Uh, but evangelism course, has import for both, but uh, is probably the most important gift when it comes to, to the idea of building the true church by uh, adding to our number. And we get that from Romans 10, verses 13 to 15, where Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Like I mentioned in our first week of this study, uh, when I used the joke from Al Mohler, Jesus could have just sent angels to do these jobs, and it might seem to us like they would have been more effective, or for that matter, he could have just spoken like he did with the wind and the waves and uh, accomplished what he wants to do in the world. But instead, as we see in the Romans 10 text, he has chosen to build his church by sending sinful people to tell other sinful people about the glory of the gospel so that they might believe it and be saved. Uh, and again, boldness is going to contribute here, just a way to see the, your, your natural inclinations or abilities to, to um, uh, inform your gift. And, and again, righteousness should inform your boldness. But uh, if you have it, if you have boldness naturally, use it for, for evangelism. Uh, don't worry about those lines blurring. Um, and we need to realize what a gift evangelism is to the church. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4 that, that evangelists were given to the church. Uh, and he says in Romans 12, how beautiful are the feet of the evangelists. And remember, you know, from Jesus' story of washing the disciples' feet, the feet of a person in New Testament times were, were filthy and stinky. I mean, from being out on the road with everything that was out on the road. Uh, and maybe you can think of a person who was instrumental in your coming to know the Lord whether that person is a dignified and honorable pastor or a person of humble stature and poor means, uh, he or she is certainly precious in your mind and blessed of the Lord to have exercised faithfully the gift of evangelism. Uh, okay, next up, uh, administration. Um, and uh, this one's dear to my heart. If you don't know, I'm, I'm the administrator here. <laughs> so I get to exercise this one. Uh, and administration. Uh, is found in the gift list in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, towards the end, verse 28. Um, this is a very practical gift, and one we can clearly see the need for as the church gets started and grows quickly in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Um, Acts 2.41 says, Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then verse 47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. 
Uh, now when we read these texts, it's appropriate that our first thought should be, wow, how wonderful. Praise the Lord for growing his church so quickly. Uh, but some of us, like myself, are, are tempted to say, wow, can you imagine the administrative nightmare? Um, and this is, this is uh, where it heads pretty quickly uh, in Acts. By the beginning of chapter 6, we read, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the early church was growing like crazy, and the apostles uh, had not put an effective administrative structure in place to make sure that ministry was, was as efficient as possible. And when this became an issue, they decided to tap the resource of administrative gifting in the body. Uh, in Acts 6, 2 and following, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And something to notice uh, in that text is that wisdom is key to administration. And incidentally, we see this in Solomon as well. Uh, and Andy talked extensively uh, about this in his survey of 1 Kings a few weeks ago. Uh, from 1 Kings 4, 1 through 6, King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and the king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoniram, the son of Adba, was in charge of the forced labor. Apart from those names. <laughs> That's an, an administration. Um, and as An Andy emphasized, uh, Solomon in all of his wisdom and skill was a type for Christ, who is perfect in wisdom and skill. And the other thing we should see from this and, and from what happens in Acts 6 is that God loves excellence and precision and order and work, and he's gifted the church uh, with administration in order to accomplish that. Um, and that's going to include whatever ed education and natural skills uh, the person brings to that. And I can tell you from experience, I'm not spiritual in all of my exercise of administration, hopefully increasingly so, but certainly not perfectly. Uh <coughs> But uh, whatever he's given for the exercise of that gift, he's allowed to that person so that as his ch church is built up, it's done with excellence and in good order as is pleasing to him. Uh, next, we're going to look at leadership, uh, which we find in the list in Romans 12. Um, you'll find that some spiritual gift lists combine leadership with administration, and the two are related, but they're different words in the text. Uh, the Greek word for leader has the meaning of standing before others in terms basically of authority. And uh, we've already considered in this study, when we looked briefly at uh, Romans 13 a couple weeks ago, that God has given us leaders over us in authority for our good and for our protection. And again, the line blurs between the, the natural and the spiritual here because Paul's talking about worldly leaders in Romans 13 uh, who are given to us for our good and for our protection. Um, but in Paul's list in Romans 12, he's in instructing that uh, leadership should be exercised with zeal. So he's concerned particularly with how it's exercised. Uh, and that word is translated diligence in the NAS, and that, that actually captures both sides of the meanings of the meaning of that word. Um, in the Greek, it has sort of a, a dual um, connotation of, for one thing, not to be idle, not to procrastinate, but also being deliberate. Um, uh, decisiveness is also a key concept to that word. 
Um, so that's, that's what leadership should entail. Uh, and we see all over scripture the importance and the restraining grace of God-given leaders. Um, and there's instruction also for the right heart for submission to leadership. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's important that leaders are decisive and deliberate and that those in submission to leaders uh, should be submitting joyfully. And when we get to, to uh, exercising spiritual gifts in our home, I'm gonna, I'll try to remember to bring that up because critical that we, we, we demonstrate to our children, model to them joyful submission. And it's something I pray in front of my daughters that I would be a model for them of joyful submission to the elders who are over me, to uh, the government that's over me, um, and, and in that way model how they should be joyfully submissive to, to their parents whom God's given them for their protection. Uh, next, closely related to leadership, is the gift of uh, shepherds or pastors, uh, which is found in the Ephesians 4 text. Um, throughout the New Testament, we see that pastor or shepherd is the leadership office given to the local church. And that's what Paul is saying there in Ephesians 4, is that Jesus gave shepherds to the church. Uh, it's worth noting here that uh, to refer to a leader as a shepherd would have been contrary to the sensibilities of a first century Jew. Shepherds were low-class laborers, so attaching that label to the office gives it a connotation of humility. <coughs> and of course, that's in keeping with much of Jesus' teaching, including, like, like we already mentioned, when he demonstrated servant leadership by washing the disciples' feet, and then later in his exchange with Peter in John 21, where he keeps asking Peter if he loves him. Uh, as Peter keeps replying that he does love him, Jesus has just one response for him. He keeps saying, feed my sheep. It's clear that Jesus was pouring into his disciples so that they would in turn spend themselves in service uh, and in their position as the first shepherds in the church. Uh, and, and again here you have the idea of, of the whole person being given to the church. And that's the list in Ephesians. God gave these whole people to the church. So whatever you have, that's, that's why the subtitle for the study is Spending All We've Received for the One Thing God's Doing in the World. Um, but he gave, he gave the apostles, and he's speaking to Peter there, he gave his disciples uh, in their position as the first shepherds of the church so, so that they would feed, lead, and protect his people. Uh, and what a gift this has been for the building of the church. Who can count the faithful men who have sacrificed even their own physical lives so that they could fulfill this calling? Uh, and we here at Calvary are so blessed. We're blessed to be under the, the authority of, of shepherds um, who are, are servant leaders truly servant leaders and, and self-sacrificial. Um, and, and the number is countless of men in the world who are doing that in local churches, um, following Jesus' example of, of servant leadership, and these shepherds are given to the church. And it's a wonderful provision. Uh, and next we're going to look at the gift of teaching, uh, or prophecy. Sp Peter, like I said, generally refers to all the gifts that would include uh, speaking as, as speaking gifts, or a, a speaking gift. Um, and here again, teaching and prophecy and speaking, they're not all exactly the same, but they are closely related, so I've included them together. Uh, in one form or another, this gift is mentioned in all four texts that we've been looking at. Uh, and since prophecy is perhaps one of the most misunderstood of all the gifts, I'm going to just quote a, a commentator verbatim on, um, on prophecy. 
He says, like its Hebrew equivalent, the Greek verb behind prophecy simply means to speak forth or to proclaim. It assumes the speaker is before an audience and could mean to speak publicly. The connotation of prediction was added sometime in the Middle Ages. Although many of the prophets made predictions, that was not their basic ministry, and the idea is not involved in the original terms used to describe them and their work. So throughout scripture, when you see the gift of prophecy, in all likelihood, in, at least in the language, the connotation doesn't include foretelling or prediction, even though that was frequently uh, a component of the office. Uh, so try to separate that in your minds as you think of the gift of prophecy. Don't necessarily think that it includes the ability to predict the future. And when it would, that's probably another important thing to note when it would include the gift of prediction, predicting the future, it was just because they were doing the exact same thing they would have been doing otherwise. Prophets were to proclaim the word of the Lord, which had already been written down extensively, uh, but the Lord might give them new revelation. And so if they were to predict the future, they'd simply be doing the same thing they were already doing, proclaiming the word of the Lord. It was the word of the Lord in either case, always inerrant, always perfectly fulfilled. Um, so... You will see later, the, the modern claims to the gift of prophecy aren't that same thing. Uh, but that should indicate why I included prophecy with teaching. Um, and I will touch briefly on, on the idea of prediction or foretelling as a gift when we look at the sign gifts in just a minute. Uh, but proclamation, and particularly proclamation of God's word, of his truth, is the basic meaning of prophecy. It is included separately from teaching in the Romans 12 list. Uh, and looking closely... We find that the distinction between prophecy and teaching is along the same lines as that between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, prophecy, if you will, is teaching applied to the, life of the, to the life of the hearer. The aim of preaching is not just the impartation of explanation and knowledge. I'm uh, sorry, the impartation and explanation of knowledge. That's the teaching component. And, and you can definitely have teaching apart from prophecy. Uh, that happens in seminaries, in Sunday school, all over the place. Uh, but... Um, what you don't want is, is prophecy or demands for the forms of righteousness happening without teaching. Uh, basically, again, you don't want to separate the indicatives from the imperatives. Uh, and that tends towards legalism. That tends towards what the Pharisees did of, of doing the practice uh, uh, commanded in the scriptures without undergirding it with the right theology or the right knowledge of God. Uh, but the aim of preaching is the increasing holiness of the people of God. And again, um, like I said, as it would be it would be detrimental to divorce indicatives from imperatives, it's not good to divorce the, the preaching of the forms of righteousness from the teaching about Christ as revealed in all the scriptures. So that's why you know Dan preaches expositionally uh, is because you're getting the knowledge of God from all the scriptures and letting that inform your practice. Uh, so, that's basically a, a recap of the gifts, loosely in order of their relevance to all of us. Um, and like I said, all of our gifts start with service or helps. Uh, and we are all generally gifted to some degree with mercy, giving, faith, knowledge, wisdom, exhortation, discernment, and evangelism. And then as we get towards the end of the list, we start to find the more exclusive gifts, the ones that are less common, uh, which along with the sign gifts were the ones that the Corinthians were fixating on, uh, for selfish or otherwise worldly reasons. Uh, and before we move on, let's take a quick look at the, the gifts that were given to the early church that aren't in practice anymore. Uh, from Ephesians 4, Paul says that the apostles were given. 
and then also uh, in the various texts, tongues, miraculous healing, uh, the interpretation of tongues, and the foretelling component of the prophetic office. Um, and I think I've mentioned already uh, that I had hoped not to spend a lot of time in this area because it's not very relevant to us and our stewardship of the gifts that the Lord has given us for the building of his church, but these are included in the text we've been studying, uh, so I thought I'd address them. Um, and I think I'd also mention that the recent Strange Fire Conference out in California did an excellent job of addressing and teaching on the background of the modern controversy surrounding these gifts. Um, and I think I put, yeah, towards the bottom uh, of the notes there, letter C under point 13, for more studies, see Strange Fire Conferences, especially Tom Pennington and Nathan Busenitz. Um, very, a lot of good academic research there, um, uh, well thought out, well, very thorough, um, much more thorough than I'm being in addressing it. Uh, but what I do want to say about these gifts um, is that they were a glorious provision, and this fits with you know the rest of the, the idea uh, that, that I'm trying to weave through uh, our study, that they're a, a glorious provision from the Holy Spirit for the building of the early church. Uh, and it's wonderful to read in Acts 2 about how the Jerusalem Jews were able to share the gospel with foreigners without any linguistic barriers because of the gift of tongues. Uh, and the rapid growth that we read about in the early church uh, has everything to do with these incredible provisions from the Lord. Um, and so also, uh, when we read of the healings of the blind and the lame, the raising of Eutychus and Dorcas from the dead, these gifts brought great encouragement. They validated new revelation and strengthened the faith of those in the early church, the same people who were facing extraordinary persecution and, and hardship, the likes of which we'll probably never face, Lord willing. Uh, and we know that there were, there were New Testament prophets in the same mold, as I mentioned, of, of the Old Testament prophets, who in addition to proclaiming what had already been written down in the scripture, received new, and this is key, inerrant revelation from the Lord and proclaimed it as a part of the Lord's work of building his church. Uh, now, just as we should revel in the gifts that we see and experience today, all through that list, uh, tangible, these are tangible manifestations of the grace of the Holy Spirit. We should thank and praise God for his provision of the miraculous sign gifts that he gave to the early church. Um, unfortunately, though, the popular modest, modern practice is, is to go beyond this and claim that believers in our day have received these same gifts uh, when, when what they're doing bears little resemblance um, if any, to the gifts given to the early church. Uh, but like I said, take a look at, at Strange Fire. That'll uh, inform more fully, more thoroughly on, on that subject. Uh, and hopefully that doesn't throw too much of a wrench in, in what I was hoping to be the main communicated point. Um, and hopefully we're seeing how great and glorious and sufficient, and, and even more than sufficient, super abundant, God's provision is to his church uh, through the various manifestations that he's granted manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And again, like we said at the, at the beginning, this list is not exhaustive, uh, and it's not intended to be. Um, your spiritual gift has components of all of these things, or many of them, but it includes, it's fueled and supplied by everything you've received, and it's for the purpose of building the church and demonstrating God's glory. God's glory is, is manifested as we spend these things we've been given for the, for the building of, of, uh, of his church. And hopefully we can see how God has given them to us uh, here in our local body at Calvary. He's given us, and, and I said this last week, he's given our very persons to serve one another. He's granted for us to show mercy to one another. He's worked mightily through our faith, given us knowledge and wisdom, a thriving counseling ministry. He's given us men and women who are faithful to, to, uh, faithful to bring exhortation and encouragement. He's granted discernment, 
Uh, he's granted gifted and faithful evangelists, ministry leaders, gifted in administration, faithful shepherds, gifted teachers and preachers. And he's given each of these, he's given each of us, for the purpose of building us up into the fullness of the stature of Christ, that we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, would be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is his work, and these are his gifts to the glory of, of God the Father in Christ. Um, and that's, that's where we're going to end for today. <laughs> uh, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, your, your provision is superabundant. And Lord, you grant to us in the knowledge of Christ all things necessary for life and godliness. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified uh, as our hearts are driven to worship by seeing um, how great and, and abundant and practical your provision for us is. And Lord, help us to see that even your provision of our, our physical needs, Lord, as you put food on our plates and roofs over our heads, Lord, as you keep us safe driving on the roads uh, back home from here, Lord, your provision of these things, your provision for our safety, these things simply indicate that you're the provider of everything we need for our perseverance. Lord, you're the provider of everything we need to enliven us from, from dead men who are dead in our transgressions and sins, Lord, and to see to our increase in holiness, Lord, as, as men who are called and chosen according to your purpose, Lord, for the glory of, of the Father in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name.